And open up your Bibles now to John chapter 14. Who is God? What does God do? What's He like? Where does God live? If you're a parent, you've heard those before. And it would be very interesting to hear how you answered them. Thousands of years ago, one of the pharaohs said to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Even Job, the great patriarch, in his suffering to his friends who were questioning why he was suffering, said, Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit is there to pray to Him? Now I will say that questions like that are not easy to answer for a very simple reason. And that is because we are simple. We are finite. And here we are trying to understand the ultimate subject, the infinite God. And uh, somewhere along the line, you're going to have to resign yourself to the fact that you're not going to understand everything there is to know about God. Because if God was small enough for our minds, He wouldn't be big enough for our problems. So you're going to come to a point, as fun as it is and as important as it is to study the character and nature of God, you're going to come to a place where you will blow a fuse and you just say, I trust, I believe. An uh, eight-year-old named Danny Dutton from Chula Vista, California did a pretty good job, actually, on the subject of God. Uh, It was third grade homework. Here was his assignment. Explain God. Explain God. That's a tough assignment for anybody. He writes, One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace all the ones that die so that there will be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think it's because they're smaller and easier to make. And that way, he doesn't have to take up valuable time teaching them to walk and talk. He can just leave that to mothers and fathers. Second, God's most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people like preachers and things pray at times besides bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV because of this. Because he hears everything, there must be a terrible lot of noise in his ears unless he has thought of a way to turn it all off. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your mom and dad's head asking for something they said you couldn't have. (laughs) Now, atheists are people who don't believe in God. I don't think there are any in Chula Vista. At least there aren't any who come to our church. (laughs) Jesus is God's Son. He used to do all the hard work, like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach people who didn't want to learn about God. They finally got tired of Him preaching to them and they crucified Him. But He was good and kind, like His Father. And He told His Father that they didn't know what they were doing and to forgive them. And God said, okay. His dad, God, uh, 
appreciated everything that he had done and all of his hard work on earth, so he told them he didn't have to go out on the road anymore, that he could stay in heaven. So he did. And now he helps his father out by listening to prayers and seeing things which are important for God to take care of and which ones he can take care of himself without having to bother his father. Like a secretary, only more important. (laughs) You can pray anytime you want, and they are sure to hear you because they got it worked out, as one of them is always on duty all the time. You should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anyone you want to make happy, it's God. (laughs) Don't skip church or do something you think would be more fun, like going to the beach. This is wrong. And besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach till noon anyway. (laughs) If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you will be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you, like to camp, but God can. It's good to know that He's around you when you're scared in the dark or you can't swim very good and you get thrown into real deep water by the big kids. But you shouldn't always just think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and He can take me back anytime He pleases. And that's why I believe in God. You know, that's pretty good for an eight-year-old kid. Not only is it profound for an eight-year-old, that'd be profound for a 48-year-old. I don't think theologians do much better than that. They just use bigger words, you know, homotheologically speaking. <laughs> this evening, we are going to cover a grand total of two verses of Scripture. And that's because I was going to cover one, but I wanted to slow down a little bit or speed up a little bit and cover two tonight. 25 and 26 we're going to look at. And uh, i I tell you why. These two verses bring up something that has been brought up before, and it's time we look at it a little more in depth. We're going to get a partial, not complete, but a partial profile of God. We have already touched a little bit on things like the Trinity and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We did a message a few weeks ago called a four-part harmony, and we saw how the Father provides, the Son intercedes, and the Holy Spirit is the Helper. But Jesus keeps bringing this back up. And and, and I thought it was important that we look at it a little more carefully. I will say, once again, as we go through this, there are some theological roads that when you look down them seem very mysterious. Don't lose any sleep over that fact. I think that's how it was planned. I think because God is transcendent, it has to be that way. So let's begin then and read verse 25 and 26, and we'll see the triune God. And I'm going to emphasize a few words as we go through it. These things I have spoken to you while being with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now this whole evening that Jesus spends with his disciples in that upper room, he is mentioning the triune God. Very freely he speaks about the Father and the Son himself and this other person that is coming alongside of them to help them called the Holy Spirit. He keeps bringing up the subjects. For instance, in verse 2, he speaks of his Father's house that has many mansions. In verse 6, he speaks of them coming to the Father through Jesus Christ alone. 
Down in verse 10 and 11, he speaks of being one with the Father. Verse 13, the Father is glorified in the Son. Down in verse 17, he speaks of the Father sending the Spirit to help. And now in verse 25 and 26, he speaks of all three persons once again. Himself, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus does this enough on this one night, and we Christians know, well, I think we believe in a trinity, don't we? We should know why. We should know why. This is not polytheism. We don't worship three separate gods as we are accused of by the Muslims and our Jewish friends. This is not modalism that says, well, really it's just one God wearing three different hats in history, three different modes of one person's activity. This is not Socinianism, which simply is something that says Jesus Christ was divinely conceived but was just a mere man and the Holy Spirit is just a force, that's all, a force of God. No, none of those are plausible. The Bible does not teach there are three gods. The Bible does not teach that one person wears three different hats. The Scripture teaches over and over again the triunity, it's a better word than trinity, the triunity of God. That there is one God, one essence, with three persons who are co-eternal, who are co-existent and co-equal. Now, I want to just cover this first. Why is this important? Why is it important to know that? It's important to know that because of the wide range of attacks upon those of us who believe it. Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons are among those who vigorously attack any of us who believe in the Trinity. And for that matter, the Muslims also. In fact, to the Muslims, the Trinity is not only illogical, the Trinity is the major sin that one can commit that makes an infidel an infidel. In fact, according to the Quran, it says, quote, Infidels now are they who say God is the Messiah, the Son of Mary. And according to the Quran, God may be merciful to liars and adulterers, but He will not be merciful to Trinitarians. In fact, according to Surah, which is the chapter in the Quran, chapter 5, Surah 577, it says, quote, Whoever shall join other gods with God, God shall forbid him the garden and his abode shall be in the fire. Now, the Bible itself teaches there is but one God. Not two, not three, not a pantheon. One God. That's fundamental. It's foundational. Every morning and every evening, the Orthodox pious Jew will wake up and quote, still to this day, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, in saying that in Hebrew, they're actually revising it. And I asked my tour guide about it this week because they don't want to pronounce the name of God, which is the tetragrammaton YHVH. We would say Yahweh or Jehovah. They don't want to pronounce the name of God. They substitute Yahweh for Adonai. But in the original Hebrew text, it says, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, 
Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. And understand Elohim in Hebrew is plural. The I am ending on any word is a masculine plural in Hebrew. You would translate it gods, but it's one God. It's Elohim. It's, it's a plural noun, but we always see singular verbs attached to it. So a literal rendering would be Yahweh is one Elohim. Three in one, or this unity of more than one is implied. Like a cluster of grapes being one cluster, the Lord is one. There's unity there in the plurality. When a, uh, when a couple gets married, the Bible says something happens. A man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, united as one. One flesh. There's two distinct persons, two backgrounds, two personalities, but they're regarded as one. Therefore, Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate because of the unity. There is a unity there. Now listen to this wording back in Genesis chapter 1. It always strikes us as odd unless you believe in the Trinity. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, Then God said, by the way, it's Elohim, the plural. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in His image. Plural noun, singular verb. Let us make man in our image. Who's God talking to? Not angels. They didn't help him create. God is talking to God. The Trinity is speaking. Also, Genesis 3.22, The Lord said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Isaiah chapter 6, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Both are combined. Now, in the New Testament, the New Testament, the book of the Christian church. In the New Testament, we know that the Father is called God. There's too many texts to look at. But also, Jesus Christ, the Son, is called God. And every now and then I'll meet somebody who'll say, you know, Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. And I always ask, what Bible are you reading? In John chapter 20, Thomas recognized it and Jesus accepted it when he said, my Lord and my God. In John chap- uh, Luke chapter 5, when the crippled man was brought uh, through the roof with his friends and, and, and s- displayed there before Jesus, and Jesus said to him, Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees immediately said to themselves and thought in their minds, This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. That would be the whole point. They got no argument from Jesus. John chapter 8, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. In Greek, ego eimi, that formula of timelessness that was used in the Old Testament, I am that I am. In John chapter 10, after there was a confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees, Jesus said, as they were taking up stones to kill him, Jesus said, I've done many works. For what good work would you stone me? They said, not for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, are making yourself out to be God. 
They understood that, and that is mentioned twice. They knew that he claimed to be God. In Matthew 9, Jesus claimed omniscience. It says, Jesus knowing their thoughts. In Matthew 28, Jesus claimed omnipotence, for he said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And he claimed omnipresence in the same chapter when he said to the disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we've got to be frank here. If Jesus isn't God, at least he deserves an Academy Award. Because what he said and what he did and what everybody around him thought he was saying about himself is that he was God. So in the New Testament, God the Father is seen as God, Jesus Christ is seen as God, and also the Holy Spirit is seen as God. And we don't have enough time to go into all the texts, but I'll give you one, and that's Acts chapter 5, after Ananias and Sapphira were brought in before the disciples after their deception, remember? It was Peter who said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. He equated the Holy Spirit with God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Bible are seen as God. Now we could, we could spend weeks on the Trinity, but I just want to whet your appetite. Another question comes up here. That's fine, that's good, no problem. How do I relate? How am I to relate to the triune God? How am I to speak to Him? How do you have a close personal relationship? What role do they play in my life? And that's important because the Trinity isn't supposed to be some little theological thing we study or something we memorize to fight off the cultists with. More than that is to be practical. It's to be personal. So consider a couple of things. First of all, the role of the Trinity in your salvation. Each member of the Godhead plays a distinct role in your salvation, your relationship to begin with, with Christ. The Father. The Father is the one who chose you. Paul said you were predestined before the world ever began. God chose you to bear forth fruit. Then, number two, the Son is the one who cleansed you. He came to the earth. He shed His blood. He uh, procured your salvation. It was by His finished work on the Christ cross. The Father chose you. The Son cleansed you. And then third, the Holy Spirit enacts it, right? John chapter 16, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will be the one who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's the one who taps you on the heart and says, you need help. You're a sinner. You need forgiveness and brings you under the blood of Christ. And then once you do come to Christ, He's the one who comes in and dwells within you and seals you, the Bible says, and makes you holy, sanctifies you, makes you better. So that's the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Then consider the work of the, of the Trinity in revelation. The work of the triune God in revealing divine truth to mankind. First of all, there's the Father. The Father inspires the Scriptures, the Word, the Revelation. Peter said, All Scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos. It was in his mind. It was in his heart. He inspired it. Then there's the Son. What's his role in Revelation? Well, he's the main subject, isn't he? He's the one who is really the fulfillment of it all. He's the, the pinnacle of all Revelation. 
He said to his enemies, You search the Scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. I'm the main subject. And then there's the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? Well, he's the supervising agent, you might say, who brings it all together for the prophets and for the apostles. For Peter wrote once again, and he said, Holy men spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit played different roles in creation, in salvation, in revelation. And also consider the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your prayer life when you talk to God. Now this is, this is sort of a biggie. I've had people ask, well, whom do we address exactly? I had a friend one time who, it always bothered him when he prayed. He just never really felt satisfied. He felt that if he left one of the members of the Trinity out, that they would be put out. So he felt like he had to address Father and then the Son and the Holy Spirit or it wouldn't work. Now, it would be appropriate since there's one God but three persons to address them all, but I think we ought to just make it easy and go with what Jesus said. Jesus said you could go directly to the Father in His name. This isn't a mystery. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then Jesus said, when you come to the Father, come in His reputation, His character, His finished work, or His name. Look over at the 16th chapter for just a moment. Same book, chapter 16. In verse 23, In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day... You will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from God. So, what's the role of the triune God in prayer? We come to the Father directly. We don't have to go through a saint. We don't have to ask anybody to talk to him for us, just directly to the Father. In the name of Jesus... Well, then what's the role of the Holy Spirit? This is the good part. Paul said in Romans 8, we don't always know how to pray like we ought. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us or prays for us with groans that words cannot express. He's like the divine editor when you pray. He knows what is the will of God, the mind of God. He also knows what your needs are. He searches our hearts, the Bible says, and he brings that before the Father. So you might be saying, Lord, you know that I need, really need a brand new speedboat. We know it's your will, Father. And the Holy Spirit is saying, Father, scratch that. What he really needs is this. Send him that. He is the triune God. Let's go back to our text. Not only is he the triune God, but he is the teaching God. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. 
your God knows your limitations. Infinite God recognizes that we are finite. And He's very patient with that, by the way. He knows our frame, remembers that we're but dust. Throughout the whole Bible, God reveals, He teaches. He sends prophets to teach the people. He sends priests to teach the priests and the people. He sends great leaders, and in the New Testament, apostles, etc. Then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus taught the crowds, taught the disciples, as here in these chapters. And the Holy Spirit was called the Helper, the Counselor, the Comforter. Now He is called the One who will teach you all things. Jesus said, while I've been with you, I've taught you, but I'm leaving. And the Holy Spirit will be the one who will pick that up and will teach you. I want you to pause for a moment because we often think of the disciples sort of as, as well, they're good already. You know, they're, they're apostles. They're like perfect. They don't need much teaching, right? What are you going to teach Peter? A lot. Not at this point, not today, but back then, a lot. But we picture these disciples, you know, as, as having halos and sort of glowing in the dark. And when they enter a room, music just oh, switches on and turns off when they leave. But, but if you read their own words, you know that's not true, right? When you see the teaching process of Jesus with the disciples, you go, they said that? They believe that? And, and it makes you feel pretty good. When you understand we're learning as well. For instance, in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus revealed, taught his death and resurrection, all Peter could say is, Oh no, far be it from you, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. On the Mount of Transfiguration, same chapter, Moses and Elijah transfigured with Christ before the apostles. Peter interrupts and says, You know, this is good. This is really good. Let's just build three tents right here and we'll just live here. That was Peter. Then there was Thomas when Jesus said, I'm going down to Judea. And the disciples said, well, they try to kill you down in Judea. Let's not go. Thomas said, let's go with them. We'll die too. Then James and John. They were the guys who in the Samaritan village, because the Samaritans didn't readily receive Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to just call fire down from heaven and kill them all? You know, very Taliban in their approach. These were his disciples. They needed to be taught. So much so that even this night in the upper room, Jesus has a few hours before he's going to leave them. They still don't get it all. They don't quite understand the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and what's going to happen after that. You know, three and a half years of teaching. If I would have been Jesus, I might have said something. From a teacher's perspective, they got an F so far. They flunked it all. I would have said, goodness, three and a half years I've been with you boys. I've told you this stuff over and over again. You're out of here, man. I'm going to choose new disciples. Doesn't do that. He says, I taught you while I was here. I'm leaving the Holy Spirit. That the Father is going to send in my name. He's going to teach you all things. And the Holy Spirit did come, and He did teach them. And I love this because it shows me that Jesus is so patient with slow learners. And I'm so grateful to Him because there's many lessons I have to be taught over and over again. 
Jesus spoke about those bearing fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. There's different rates. There's different paces. We all need to be taught. Did they ever learn, by the way? Yes, they did. The Holy Spirit performed His ministry and we see after the resurrection a different group of guys. Pretty amazing, actually. On the day of Pentecost, to listen to Peter's sermon. It's quite astonishing. Because Peter was the one who said, Far be it from you, Lord. We're not going to make sure that you don't get killed. You don't get crucified. Six weeks after that, five and a half weeks after that, the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and he says, Jesus Christ being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you by your wicked hands have crucified and slain. He got it. He learned the lesson. The Holy Spirit taught him. Now, have you ever had that experience? You've read the Bible. You read a familiar verse. You know it. You memorize it. And then suddenly you read it again and you get it. It dawns on you. The Holy Spirit breaks open that hard, callous soil of your heart and the truth seeps in and it's, ah, yeah, I get that now. Now, I do want to bring up and then hopefully clear up an issue regarding this text. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things. Some have interpreted this erroneously to say, well, we don't need human teachers today. We don't need pastors and Sunday school instructors. We don't really need accountability because we have the Holy Ghost. God speaks to me personally. I don't need anybody else. There's always a wingnut around that thinks that. And they often base it on this and another text I'd like you to turn to. This isn't John. This is 1 John. So go right, way right, almost to the book of Revelation, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. In verse 24, we'll begin. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it is taught you, you will abide in Him. So they will say, see, you don't need anybody else to teach you. You yourself have the anointing. Or usually they say, I have the anointing. You might not, but I do. And I know all things and I don't need any kind of human teachers to do this or to speak to me because I know all things. John isn't speaking about some mystical, super spiritual elite experience that renders you capable of knowing all things suddenly. The context is deception. I'm writing this that no one deceive you. Here's what he's saying. There was a group in the church that John was writing to called Gnostics who believed they had some spiritual super knowledge that nobody else had, secret revealed truths. We have special truth from God. Beware of anybody who gives you that line. John says, actually, 
we all have God's anointing because we all have the Spirit and we're all capable by the Holy Spirit to discern, if we want to, truth from error, deception from reality. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment. Now in verse 27 when he says, you know all things, this is not in the absolute sense. I know some people who think they know all things. But he is referring here to the capacity to identify truth. So he's not saying in John or in 1 John that we don't need human teachers when he says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things because I will contend that's how the Holy Spirit teaches us a lot of things is by responsible and accountable teaching. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 makes it abundantly clear that God is the one who gave these gifts to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip God's people to do His work to build up the church, the body of Christ until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature and full-grown in the Lord, measuring up to the full stature of Christ. It's important. Somebody came up to me one time and asked me, why do you study so much? You don't need to. Just stand up there and let the Lord do it. Just let the Holy Spirit take over. Well, that's how the Holy Spirit takes over. I want to make sure that my well is at least as deep or deeper than your buckets. So I'll study and put as much in it through the week as I can. Because I remember somebody taught me something one time. He said, if you stand in front of a hundred people and speak an hour and you're not prepared, you've just wasted a hundred hours of God's time. Somebody went up to um, G. Campbell Morgan, the great British preacher, the Prince of Preachers, he was called. And they said, oh, Dr. Morgan, your preaching is such an inspiration. He said, well, let me tell you that 95% of inspiration is perspiration. Study to show yourself approved unto God, the Scripture says. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So our God is an awesome God. He's the triune God. He's the teaching God. And third, and we close with this, He is the trustworthy God. Go back now to John chapter 14. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and... We could see this as part of the same thought, but let's just break it apart, shall we? And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come and help us remember all these. It doesn't mean that we're never going to have to study for exams again or ever crack a book because we'll just get supernatural revelation. But all the things that Jesus spoke to them Now, primarily, he's dealing with the 12 apostles, his chosen representatives, to reveal truth to the early church. Brings up a very important issue. How could 12 fishermen, basically uneducated fishermen, remember three and a half years of what Jesus said and did and write it down? They couldn't do it without help. They couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for the human brain to retain three and a half years of information of messages. I I can't even remember my messages. I remember some 
oh, well, it happens often. Skip, remember last year in that message, you said something about, oh, what page was that on or what, what tape was that? Man, I would have quite a gift if I could remember that. But the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all of these things. And once again, after Pentecost, we see this happening. We see Peter who wonders why Jesus has to go to the cross and the apostles doubting. And we see Peter in Acts chapter 2 craft a sermon where not only does he remember all that Jesus said and did, but he quotes Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110 almost perfectly. The Holy Spirit brought it to his remembrance. The stuff that he had been taught, that he had learned. Now... Even though Jesus spoke this primarily to the apostles, I think secondarily it has an application to us. There's a couple of principles, and we'll close with this. Principle number one. God's wisdom wisdom isn't necessarily a new thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing God has revealed in the past. That's God's wisdom. You're going to remember all the things I've already said to you. You know, we in America... And when it comes to spirituality, we have this propensity to want to invent theology. We want it to evolve. We want something new we've never heard before. I was watching Christian television one night and somebody expounded a text horribly. And the moderator of the TV thing said, Wow, I never, I never knew that before. I never saw that before. That's because it's not there. That's all. This is the reason so many new weird theories are grabbed a hold of. The Passover plot. Ooh, read this book. I never heard that before. The sacred mushroom and the cross. Ooh, I never heard that before is another one. The Last Temptation of Christ as a movie. Well, we, we never saw that before. H.A. Ironside used to say something that I think is profound. He said, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And let me just caution those of you who are always looking for a new revelation. You know what you really need? You just need a new application of the old revelation. The old stuff. Like in Luke chapter 24, the apostles on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us as He spoke to us along the way? What did He speak to them? The Scripture that they already knew, they grew up with. But it was a fresh application of it. So... The wisdom of God isn't necessarily a new thing. It's the same thing. Principle number two. When Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is going to bring these things to your remembrance, this implies something about our nature. It implies that you and I have a tendency to forget things quite easily. It's part of human nature. It's part of the the human element. The important stuff, the doctrinal stuff, the foundational stuff, we forget it quite easily. Even though we've heard it before, it has to be reinforced over and over again. I once once read something sort of depressing. It said the human mind can only retain 25% of what it hears if it's told twice to the person. That's very bleak if you're a teacher to hear that. The human brain only retains 25% of what it hears if it's reinforced twice. 
we forget things quite readily. One of the jobs of, of a minister is to remind the congregation of the truths that we forget about and go over them and over them and over them. By the way, the history of the Christian church, the history of the Christian church is a history of great movements of God who experienced revival and blessing and eventually forgot the foundational truths they began with. You can see it in in so many denominations across the board that today they don't represent how they began with those essential truths. So we need to be reminded of them. We should never grow weary in that. By the way, one of your jobs is to remind one another of the truth of God because that natural tendency of spiritual entropy. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We need to teach each other, remind each other of the truth. God, an awesome God, a triune God, a teaching God, trustworthy God. And I bet you've even experienced times when you're witnessing to someone, you don't quite know what to say, and then as you get into it, obediently start witnessing to that person, you remember a scripture and another scripture, and you remember an example, and something else comes to your mind, and you walk away from that, and you go, I was good. (laughs) How did that work? You weren't good. The Holy Spirit reminded you of that. I will close as I began. Remember Danny Dutton? He knew how awesome God was. He said, remember, if you don't believe in God besides being an atheist, you'll be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you like to camp, but God can. It's good to know He's around when you're scared of the dark or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown in real deep water by the big kids. It's great to know that we have the company, we have the teaching we have the reminders of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we now turn our our thoughts toward You as we digest these truths. We pray that You would help us. I pray that we would be more and more conscious of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, even while we're praying that we would recognize that it was the Father who chose us. It was the Son who paid the price. It is the Holy Spirit who supervised our salvation. And Lord, even while we're praying, we would realize that the Holy Spirit, even at that moment, is editing, supervising those prayers. Lord, strengthen Your church in these fundamentals. Help us never to forget them. Help us help us never to lose sight of them or deem them as unimportant. Help us to not only know what we believe, but why, and to rejoice that we have a relationship with such an awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen.